Uh, if you've got a Bible, we are starting something brand new tonight. We are in Acts chapter 1. Tonight is going to be more of an introduction to this study, as you probably are used to when we start these big, kind of lengthy Bible studies. We'll be reading um, some scripture, of course, but up front, we're just going to talk about um, why um, I believe that it's, it's so important that we study this book. You know, I've preached through Acts um, on and off throughout parts of, the, parts of Acts um, for years, and uh, we, have, um, we have never sit down together and did a uh, thorough chapter-by-chapter um, verse by verse, uh, walk through this book. Uh, we're calling this series The Church because Acts is all about the church. Um, in its earliest of days, as it took the world by storm, you could also call this uh, study World Changers because these men and women would change the world. Uh, and tonight, uh, I think it'll all kind of come together nicely as we talk about the keys uh, to success or the keys that we need to implement uh, to be a successful, not in numbers or in, in, in the way we measure success, but in faithfulness um, to the Lord as, he, as he's given us this sacred mantle um, and this sacred identity and calling to be a part of his church. So uh, Acts, as you all know, comes after John. We just finished John, so it was just a nice um, logical con- uh, next step to take. Uh, but you probably know this. Acts is not um, Acts is actually written by another um, author that wrote a different gospel. So Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke, um, wrote the book of Acts, even though John is tucked between Luke and Acts. It's just because the, the synoptic gospels are first, and then John's is after that, and then we have this narrative of the early church. So Acts is not a continuation of John's story in, in the sense that it's not told the way John would tell his stories. It's told rather the way Luke would tell his, but it's still the next sequence of events. Um, so I want to kind of briefly talk about Luke's style Luke's, um, the way he wrote his gospel and the way that influences the way he wrote Acts because it's important and we're going we're gonna to pick up a lot of things that we didn't really see in John that if we would do a study through Luke, and we will one day, if we were to do a study through Luke, this would be important to kind of understand that as well. And I've preached a lot through Luke's, uh, Luke, I did a whole thing through their eyes a couple years ago um, leading up to Easter. I love the gospel of Luke. I've taken probably more classes and read more books about Luke and Acts than any other, of the, any other books of the Bible. Um, it's just kind of I gravitate, lean, toward uh, the way Luke tells his stories and the way Luke preaches and the way his books kind of present the gospel. I love it so much, and I love teaching through these books. Um, so again, Luke's gospel versus John's gospel. A couple things. Luke is not an apostle, which is a, a, a really a, a unique thing if you, were to, if you read through the New Testament, um, because most other writers are apostles. But Luke was a companion of the apostle Paul, and, and Paul um, plenty of times gives Luke his sort of uh, affirmation and confirmation, hey, this guy knows his stuff, this guy's inspired, this guy's important to our team. Um, Luke was a companion of Paul, traveled with Paul. Um, Paul refers to Luke a few times, uh, specifically, specifically uh, in, in Colossians. He talks about Luke the physician being with him, even though everybody else had forsaken him. Uh, It seems that Luke was often imprisoned with Paul. Uh, So Luke was really in there through thick and thin. Uh, We we think, and this is a, a big maybe, but we think Luke shows up in Acts 16. There's an unnamed uh, uh, person that uh, signals for Paul's help in Macedonia, uh, and after that, that man joins the team. And if you read the Gospel of Luke or read the Book of Acts, the uh, the narrative is all about they and them, and then in Acts 16, it becomes we. So Luke clearly joined the team in Acts 16. Whether he is the unnamed man, we don't know. But it's kind of similar to the way John in his Gospel talks about the disciple that Jesus loved. That's John. But John, just the way he told his stories, he wouldn't refer to himself. 
himself. He talked about himself in a third-person way. It's very likely that Luke did the same thing. It was a thing that the people that wrote in these times would have done. So when we get to Acts 16, you're going to see the shift from they to we, and we're going to meet a man um, who, is a, who is unnamed who wants Paul to come and preach the gospel in Greece. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Luke, uh, of course, would have been in that area. But we'll get to that uh, in, in due time. Luke, along with Mark, again, are the, is the only New Testament author. They're the only New Testament authors who were not apostles, who weren't um, a disciples and, or, or like the Apostle Paul and was not a brother of Jesus. So if you know the New Testament, you know that all the books are written by disciples, by Paul, and by James and Jude. James, Jude being brothers of Jesus, and then Paul being obviously the apostle to the Gentiles and the rest of the books written by the apostles themselves. So Luke and Mark, Mark a friend of Peter, Luke a friend of Paul, makes sense why he would have been given the keys to write one of these books. Uh, Beyond just the surface though, um, we know a few more things about Luke. Really important, Luke is a Gentile which is, he's the only Gentile to get to pick up a pen and write in the New Testament, in in the Bible, really. Uh, Luke is a Gentile. That's a really big deal. If you would have told, I don't know, if you would have dropped in and told Moses or told David or told one of the prophets, hey, one day a Gentile is going to write a book that's going to be included in the book that God has inspired, they would laugh at you because they they would have maybe hoped it and maybe would have dreamed it, but they would have never imagined that a Gentile would not only join the team, but be an author in the inspiration that sells the whole movement to the world. So this is a big deal, especially for us here on the other side of the world. We're Gentiles, so that's a big deal, right? We talked this morning about the sons of Noah, Japheth, uh, who went north to the mountains and, and went into Europe. The Gentiles come from his lineage. So it's a big deal that even though they went away and even though God did his thing through Shem and then, then through Abraham and then through Israel, that all these years later, Luke is the one that gets to write about the church going to the world, of course, a recipient of that worldwide shift from just Israel to everybody else. So along with being a Gentile, we obviously are told a story in a unique Gentile perspective. Many believe Luke was writing his two-volume documentary, hoping for his work to join the contemporary pieces of history of his day. Luke was aiming to submit a, a, a historical biography. If you read Luke and Acts, you put them together and you hold them up and compare them to other narratives, other historical books written in the first century, Luke, is very, his style is very similar. Of course, he's inspired by God, but God was given Luke the ability and the authority to write something that would be a part of history. Now, you have never read anything else. I don't, I don't want to undersell your, your, your intrigue. I doubt any of you have ever read anything else from the first century, but you've read Luke and you've read Acts. That's a pretty big deal, and I doubt many of the historians of Luke's day would have ever thought, hey, nobody will remember us, but you'll remember this guy named Luke. Luke wasn't really a writer. He wasn't a journalist. He was a doctor. He was a doctor that most likely um, was, was employed by some very wealthy people who kind of had, you know, he was a, kind of a servant that kind of went around to these wealthy people. And apparently one of his patrons, we're going to read about in a little bit, one of his patrons funded his leave, funded his um, sabbatical to lay down his uh, briefcase of, of med- medical tools and go out and look for information and and find out more about this Jesus that he had heard so much about. Of course, he ends up joining the team. He ends up becoming a part of the church. And we believe, most of us believe, um, that when Paul goes to, to, to the Pentecost festival in 57 AD, when he eventually is arrested in Jerusalem, 
at around Acts 20, 21. When Paul goes to Jerusalem and they say, hey, you shouldn't go down there, Paul. That's going to be crazy. And he's locked up and he's on trial before Festus and, Festus and Felix and then Agrippa. Um, Luke was in Jerusalem in that time period and was most likely going around and interviewing people and talking to the people like Mary, like John, like Peter, like James, all these people that knew Jesus. Luke is going around talking to them, getting to know them. And God is using that to give him the information that he would need to write these books. So again, aside from God's inspiration, many would ask the question, what was Luke's personal reasons? What made him want to lay down his, his medical um, you know, life and, and, and go into this field of, of, of you know, researching and, and studying and, and, and again, writing about this movement? What was his personal convictions for setting out on this journey? Because it was very costly for Luke. Um, shortly, short and simply, Luke wanted the world to know Luke was driven by a desire for the world to know the Jesus he had come to know. And he wanted to tell the world about Jesus. That may sound like a very shallow thing, but that's what, driven, that's what drove him. To borrow a line from a previous study, Luke was undeniably convinced that Jesus was the way to God. And him being a Gentile really provided him a unique opportunity to tell not just Jews but the whole world and have their ear because they would listen to him because of his Greek and Roman and, and, and pagan background. Uh, again, we could say that Luke was convinced. Luke was certain that everyone else would be convinced as he was if they could only hear this for themselves. Uh, a scholar that wrote a pretty awesome commentary on Luke, Kent Hughes, wrote this. Luke believed the proper telling of the story of Jesus would certainly produce belief in the truth. Luke believed in the power of the gospel. And that's why uh, Luke's prologue is so important, the beginning of the gospel of Luke. It's so important. It sets the tone for both of his uh, volumes. Uh, if you have remembered, if you've read it before, you remember how Luke starts his story. And it's, and, and it's not the way most biblical books start out. It's not, you know, in the way that we often go into the Bible because Luke wasn't writing to people that would have automatically been drawn to this. Luke wasn't writing to people who already had that Jewish background. He wasn't writing to people that were already expecting a Messiah. He was writing to people that had heard about it but were skeptical. They had you know, wanted to know more about it but weren't really sure if there was a place in the story for them. So that's why Luke, knowing people have heard about Jesus and heard about the church, Luke began his gospel like that. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. As in, everybody's heard about this. And a lot of people are trying to tell their version of the story to try to make sure they have all the facts and tell the full story. Luke says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Luke, being part of Paul's team, he says, hey, I've talked to these eyewitnesses. I've talked to these that have handled the word and handled the stories. And, and remember in Luke when he talks about how Mary treasured those things in her heart. He talks about how the people that saw and, 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 and interacted with Jesus held those stories close to their heart. And Luke refers to them as ministers of the word because they had seen these events and they passed them along to Luke to tell their story. So Luke says, hey, they delivered them to me and I, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent 
Theophilus. Now, Theophilus must have been one of his patrons, someone that he was employed by, someone that he did a lot of work for. Maybe he was a personal doctor. He was a doctor for Theophilus. We don't really know. It is unique that Theophilus, the Greek name, means God lover. Um, that probably was his given name, but it's not ironic, I don't think, that Theophilus was someone who was seeking information about the, about God, of course, Theophilus, a Greek man, would have that would have been referred to the gods, um, you know, loving or looking after or longing for the gods. Yet he found out that Luke could give him information about the one and only God. So Luke says, "I am going to write an orderly account so that you can know everything, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." So I love Luke is unique in that. I think it's the most appropriate gospel to take to someone who is a skeptic, who is a seeker, someone who doesn't have the church background that maybe you have. Because Luke wants you to know up front, I don't, he doesn't start this story once upon a time, long, long ago, in a far away. He starts the story by saying, hey, y'all, I know you might have some questions. So you can trust me. I've searched, I've researched, I've went and talked to everybody you can trust this story. You can have certainty by the inspiration God has given me and by the stories that God has allowed me to hear. You can have certainty about what you're about to read. So if you read through any of the Gospels, we get this picture of so many people trusted in Jesus because of what they saw, because of who they met. And much like our time with John, Luke tells his story so the world might know what he knows. But volume two of his story goes beyond Jesus to tell the story of the church that Jesus was building, which was in motion as Luke was writing it, and Luke ends the story with a lot more to be told. Uh, but the church would be God's chosen vehicle to step alongside the world and to carry the message of the gospel to the world. The focus shifts um, into Acts. is all about, the, as it goes into Acts, it's all about the ministry that the disciples of Jesus continue in his place, in his steps. Acts will tell the story about how the Jesus movement was just getting started. His departure wasn't the end of his earthly ministry as many expected. Even the disciples thought it was, as we've learned in John. But it was actually just the beginning. As we learned in our last few installments of John, there was a new resurrection reality on planet Earth. In Acts, we get to see brand new information, uh, this brand new information, this brand new movement encounter different cultures, different communities, and they all respond differently. The Greeks, the Romans, the, the people that were parts from different parts of, of, of Judea and on into Samaria and into the uh, area of Syria and, and modern-day Turkey, as the gospel spreads farther and farther, people respond differently at first, but eventually, whether their people were in Jerusalem or Antioch or Philippi or Rome, they all begin to respond the same way, putting their faith in the Jewish carpenter who died for their sins. It's unbelievable that within just a few, you know, and here's the thing. If you study religion, if you study the history of religions, every religion that has been founded and that, has, that was started by somebody that some community claims to be sacred and holy, it, takes, it, has, it, ta it took hundreds of years, most religions, it took over 500 years for those movements to get organized, for the books to be written, and for everything to get off the ground and begin to be legitimate and, and, and begin to function. The Jesus movement, in less than 30 years, people all over the known world had heard about him and were worshiping him as God. If, you want, if somebody argues with you that, that you can't trust the Bible or Christianity was all made up and then somebody down the road picked it up, 
the Jesus movement took the world by storm, and it's undeniable how fast it grew, the impact it made, that clearly it was the movement of God himself. The one treat we get from both Luke's version of the gospel and of course in Acts is the benefit and the addition of a little more Roman information in this Greco-Roman perspective. Um, while at the same time, we also see that Luke is trying to earn and maintain the respect of the Jewish people. He's always very favorably about the Jewish traditions, the Jewish temple. He quotes the Old Testament appropriately because he wants both Jew and Gentile to know his story can help you. Um, the duality is pretty simple. Luke is telling a story about how Jesus and his church are the answer to Jewish prophecy. So Luke is writing to Jews and he's saying, I'm telling you, Jesus and the church is the answer to every Jewish prophecy. And all the Jews who were expecting a kingdom, they were expecting some sort of great worldly empire. They were expecting a king. They were expecting things to be done as it had been under David and Solomon. But Luke says, no, no, no. I understand why you would think that, but it's undeniable that Jesus is the answer. The church is the answer. Every Jewish prophecy is fulfilled or will be fulfilled through Jesus and his church. And of course, Luke writes to Gentiles and saying, says to them that Jesus and his church are also the answer to the Gentile longing. Now, what does that mean? The Gentiles were obviously very religious people. They worshiped pagan gods. They had all sorts of really sometimes crude ways of worshiping the gods, very immoral, very, um, very odd from our perspective. But the Gentiles were, were, were a people, the Greeks, the Romans, all over the world. They were so passionate about trying to encounter the divine, trying to encounter the gods if they were out there. All the, the Roman emperors claimed to be God in flesh. All they had idols and, and, and temples and all sorts of rituals. Every Gentile had a long longing in their hearts, feeling and looking for some sort of answer to answer that, that to, to quench that, that, that thirst in their souls that said there is a God out there and they worship Zeus and Jupiter and all the different underlings, but they never could find the answer. And in walks people like Paul and Luke telling them, I know you might think it's crazy, but let me tell you about a Jewish carpenter who is God in flesh. Now, we've heard all of that in our time with John about how Jesus fulfilled prophecy and expectations. We'll hear it from a different angle in Acts, which is going to be beneficial. It's very clear from the beginning that there's a backstory to Jesus and his movement, but it's also clear that anyone that is looking to join this movement, Luke wants you to know that Jesus is enough. You don't have to pass a test. You don't have to have prior knowledge. If you know the Old Testament, great. You're going to be really blessed when you start seeing all this work out. But if you have just walked in the door, Jesus is enough, and we'll get you caught up to speed in a minute. Jesus is the fulfillment to both Jewish and Gentile expectations. Those waiting for a Messiah and those looking for some sort of encounter with the gods. Jesus could answer and fulfill both of those desires. Whether you're looking for a God or the gods or not, Acts tells the story about how God came looking for us. And he wasn't satisfied with just reaching a few people or just the Jewish people. And maybe you also don't know this, that Christianity was the first evangelical movement in terms of religions, nobody, there, there were no Buddhist missionaries, there were no Hindu missionaries, there were no Jewish missionaries in the ancient world. Nobody was going around saying, hey, you should believe in my God, you should join my culture, because they were so isolated, and they didn't want anybody in their culture unless you were born into it, unless you were brought up in it. But Christianity was this bold and brave new idea that we have something the rest of the world needs. And indeed, we did need it, and we do need it. 
He had a heart set on the world, which is why Jesus set out to build his church. When he said back in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church, and hell will not stop it. But the church was not what many expected it to be. Now, you have to understand the Jews and the Gentiles came from a world where there were solid temples. There were temples that were bound to certain cities, and you only could visit and encounter God in those certain cities on certain days doing certain rituals. The Jewish people, really religion had trained all people to understand God through holy cities or the holy city with exclusive holy places. The church, though, would not be one of these kind, the church would not be one of these kind of movements. It would not be a religion as religions were defined. The church would not be confined and contained to certain cities with certain parameters. The church was to reach and spread to every city, be all about holy people. Not a holy place or a holy ritual or a holy day. Those things have their place, but they are not the end-all be-all because God is after people, a community of his own. It would not be about a building. It would not be about traditions. It would be about a relationship with God and his people. We often suppose that the church is all about time and place because of this temple model the Old Testament used and really every religion used. And here's something that, that I think is important for us to know. The word church itself, um, you know, really kind of encourages that kind of mentality. Now, let me explain. Church, which is a lat, which is obviously our English word, um, that comes from a German word, a German word, Kirch, which means Lord's house. The Germans use this word Kirch to describe the pagan houses they worship the gods or the go- god of their culture in. But if you study the real, the, the, behind the, the, the text, behind the English, the Greek word is not at all referring to a physical place, a physical building, as in the emphasis on church is the building itself. But the word used in Acts and the words used by Jesus is something different. The word behind church in the Greek is this word ekklesia. Jesus said, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Anytime you see the word church in the book of Acts, it's referring to this ecclesia, which is all about the gathering, the assembly. Yes, we meet in a building. Yes, we meet in a place. But it's about the people that meet here or there and everywhere. See, church is a word that means there's only one of these and we only can, it only you know, operates at a certain time. Ecclesia says it is about us, a body of people that come together and go together and live together and do life in this community called Christianity, this community we call the church. But the problem is, as the church rose to power in Rome, the focus shifted from people to place, relationships to religion. And over time, the, the church that came into power under Rome and then took over most of Europe, it began to stress that God was exclusively found behind certain walls and on certain traditions. And it was all done through this, this, name, this, this idea of religion. As time passed, church lost its original meaning. And, and, and the Catholic church of the time embraced this temple model, this church model. Bibles were kept out of the vernacular, the common tongue, to control the flow of information. If you wanted to know what God said, you had to come to the house where the holy, where the holy person would read from the holy text on the holy day. But if you weren't in the holy place, and if you didn't listen to the holy man, you didn't hear anything. And you couldn't read it for yourself. Because that might be a little bit too much knowledge for you. So for years and years, the Bibles were kept out of people's hands, and William Tyndall was one of the first that sought to change this. William Tyndall lived around 1494 to 1536, died not an old man, but William Tyndall 
was a man who learned to read Latin and realized that the church was holding so much information back from the people. And his main contention with the church was this idea uh, the ecclesia did not mean this physical building where everything was controlled, but it meant congregation. And William Tyndall risked his life to translate a Bible into English, the first of its kind, and I've got a facsimile of it in my office. William Tyndall translated the Bible into English, and in the place of that word church, he used the word congregation to emphasize it's about a movement of God's people, where God moves within and moves through and fills our hearts. He was burnt at the stake for that translation. But all these years later, his martyrdom still speaks to us. And greater than that, the book of Acts speaks to us. And why do I tell you all that? Because the story of the church is all about God's people being the church. Being the church. Transformed by and testifying to God's power. We meet together, yes, but we move beyond this place. To be the church of Jesus Christ. It seems crazy that we often get this wrong, doesn't it? But Acts is going to make it clear to us that this has been God's intent from the beginning. For just a brief moment, look down at Acts chapter 1 as we get a tease of what's to come. The former account I made all Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Until the day in which he has taken, he was taken after he through the Holy Spirit has given commandments to the apostles whom he chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Right off the bat, verse 1 signals to us what, the ch- what this book's going to be all about and what it really means to be the church. It says, this is what Jesus began to do and teach, and there's a comma there. Emphasis on began and emphasis on the comma. Acts is the story of the church continuing what Jesus began to do and teach. But let me ask you, are we not still this same church? Because the comma implies that the story was just beginning. Not a period, but a comma. So are we? Are we continuing to do and teach and be the church as Jesus began to do? and teach, and model for us to be. Now, the church does a lot. We're not for lack of busyness and traditions, but are we doing this? If not, what are we doing? And where do we get off track? That would take a while to talk about, wouldn't it? Well, we could talk for days, but we'll see in Acts, the church continues. The church was called to, and began to, and we are still called to proclaim Jesus as Lord, to walk in and witness to the promise and power of salvation as a body, as a people, the people of God, as the church. This opening text reminds us two ways that Jesus attested to God's promise and power. We see in verse 2 that it talks about him giving commandments. He was always teaching God's word, bringing the old and interpreting into the new and adding more to it. Jesus 
always emphasized the importance of God's word. But also we see there in verse 3 that Jesus was a man who, had, who suffered greatly. He suffered for our sins. The word passion in King James is really speaking of his sufferings. He was so passionate about doing the right thing and doing the thing that the, the world needed him to do that he was willing to give his life up. So two things we're going to see prominent throughout Acts is that the disciples embraced Scripture and endured suffering. And if we're going to be the church, these two things are going to be front and center of our identity and our mission every single day. Are we embracing Scripture over any other authority? Are we standing for Scripture over any other opinion? And are we enduring suffering rather than retreating or rather than fighting battles that maybe not be ours to fight? We see these two common threads and acts. They, are always stayed, they always stayed with God's Word. They leaned on it. They lived by it. And as they faced hardships, they faced persecution. They were always faithful in the trial. We're going to see them suffer almost every chapter, knowing that God was going to use it for His glory. The power that God wants to give us will lead us in a lifestyle that never forgets these two things, that we would allow Scripture to guide us in our daily lives, that we would always bring everything under the voice and authority of Scripture, our politics, our economics, our morals, our personal, our professional lives. There's nothing that we don't bring under the authority and the voice of Scripture. And if there is something in our lives that we don't bring under the authority and the voice of Scripture, it will inhibit us from being the church. Private, public, nobody knows or everybody knows. If it's not under the voice and authority of Scripture, we will be stunted in our being the church. The disciples, they embraced Scripture when it came, when it would have been easier to go with many other possible ways. It cost them everything. It cost them their jobs. It cost them their homes. It cost them their, 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 their identity as Jewish people. It cost them so much. But they would not settle for compromise. The power also enabled them to endure suffering when standing up for God would cost them. Verse 4 says that God told them in this specific instance to wait on the promise, of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit about the fall. But I think this is really broad that could, that's something we need to remember all the time. Because it seems like God's people were always waiting on Him, aren't we? And that's the right thing to do. We need to wait on Him and defer to Him and trust in Him. I think we can understand the context of waiting for God's promises to come. We're waiting for God in this world right now to do things that we're asking Him to do. But we need to understand what they were waiting on and what we should be waiting on. Because sometimes I think God moves and we don't realize it because we're waiting on something else. If we're going to be the church, we've got to learn this very important truth, even if it means we encounter things that may be difficult. God's promise to the church is that he will be with us wherever he sends us and through whatever we face, whatever happens to us. Do you understand this? That his promise to them, wait on me. I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. Whatever you face, whatever happens to you, treat it as if it's coming from me. And then you'll know to trust in the Lord. Wherever I bring you, wherever I send you, I am going to fulfill my promise to you. You can guarantee that. My point is this. In Acts, there's one thing that we don't really see a lot, and I think it really could help us in our world today. In Acts, we don't see a lot of big changes happening around the church. Let me explain. The governments were never for them. Right? 
I mean, the Jewish governments, the, the Gentile governments, no government. The circumstances around them were never really going the way they needed them to go for it to be easy. And we never see them. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just telling you what they do. And I know this sometimes people kind of get aggravated with me because I say stuff like this, but, you know, I got to say it because the Bible says it. They, we never see them really praying for the world to kind of, you know, make it easier for them. Even though that's okay to pray. We see them always praying for God to give them what they need to face whatever the world brings them. Now, here's the difference in them and us. And I'm not knocking you. I'm talking about me. They were, so, they were so dependent on the sovereignty of God. They didn't worry with the things they knew God was going to be in control of anyway. They were more in tune with their own hearts being out of the will of God. And they spent their most time praying for God to change them. They didn't really have time to pray for the rest. Again, that's just them. But what we see in Acts is even though they kept encountering obstacles, we see big changes happening within the church. Imagine this. Instead of asking God to give them a way around it or a way over it, they prayed for God to give them a way through it. I think Charles Stanley said it best. When God says go and it, there's a brick wall there, we have to trust that he's going to make a way. It might hurt, I don't know, but if he says, hey, you're going to get through it, you've got to trust that God knows what he's doing and he loves you. See, we often pray for God to move this or lower that or lessen this, and that's okay to pray. But the disciples were not worried about that as much as they were. God, how can we get through it? Because it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. We often pray for the Holy Spirit to change this or that, move this or move that. But he may choose to do those things, and it's okay, and we should pray for those. But more often or not, more often than not, he's wanting to do a work in us first. And who knows, after he does the work in us, he may make it a lot easier than it would have been ahead of time, but he wants to do that work in us to prepare us for something. So I want to ask him, what work is he wanting to do in you? Verse 5 speaks of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, when you were saved, you received the Holy Spirit. You received all of Him, not part of Him. You received the Holy Spirit of God when you became a Christian. But every, every day is an opportunity to get refilled, to get baptized again, to get filled with the Spirit of God. The disciples, it says over and over again, they were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They, they hadn't lost it, and they hadn't only got some of it, some of Him. They got Him in full in chapter 2, but God's always pouring more out. Just like you need more food every day, right? Just like you need to be replenished some days. The Spirit of God is always replenishing us. So what work is God wanting you to do? And here's what we're going to find in Acts. He's always working on their characters, and he's always trying to give them a calling. That's the two things we need to pray. God, what work are you trying to do? What improvement to my character can you give? And what calling are you wanting to lead me in? When we pray for this baptism, for this filling of the Holy Spirit, this refreshing of what salvation is, when we pray for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, for God to give us faith to follow Him and patience to rely on Him, because that's what we've learned in these first few verses. Wait on me, have patience for me, trust in me, but follow me while you wait the best you can and do the most you can. So we pray for this baptism, and what, was it, what will this baptism bring you every day? Faith and patience. Faith and and patience, and that will do a work on our hearts. It will improve our character, and it will give us some sort of clarity about the calling God has on our lives. 
I think sometimes we talk about baptism and we talk about Holy Spirit and we think about a feeling we have in church, and that's great. I love feeling good in church, but this is better than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. It's about faith that we need to do a work for the Lord and be the church. I want you to feel good every Sunday. I hope you feel good every day. (laughs) But some days you don't. But one thing that God can give you no matter what you're feeling is faith to do a work, faith to be the church, and patience when it's hard to be the church. What work does God want to start in us? As we're going to read about the work he does through the disciples, what work, what work, what extra faith does he want to give you pertaining to his word, the trial you might be facing, character calling over your life? When Jesus said back in Matthew, I'm going to build my church and hell can't stop it, look what he says after that. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you the keys. That you have the ability every single day to put the key in the door and you can open it and through your life, God will be moving in the direction of all those around you. You can bind things or you can lose things. You can open the door and throw things in or you can open the door and let something come out. As you are reaching people, interacting with people, encouraging people, facing trials with people, you have the ability to show them that their struggles can be bound and they can be loosed from those things. They can find victory. They can find faith. They can find patience. They can have their characters changed and they can find a brand new calling. But here's the thing. This key that God has given us, these keys that God has given us, they should be a very heavy weight in our pocket because most people don't have them, but you do. You're the church. You're the church. And every single day, you have the opportunity to open the door to the kingdom of heaven for God to do a work through you with your words, with your actions, with your life. Don't underestimate what these keys can do. And if we live up and measure up, who knows what the church in the year 2020 and beyond will be able to accomplish. If we want it, it's there for us. I think we have a great Great time ahead of us as we study the book of Acts, as we learn what we should do with these keys, what God wants to do with you and me. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for making us the church. Lord, thank you for this building, for this location, for making us risen church. We're alongside many, many others that are doing the same thing, that are serving the same kingdom. But Lord, I pray for the people here tonight. I pray, Lord, if they can just get a tangible key if they've got a key in their pocket or a key in their bag, Lord, if they want to hold that key tonight at some point, I pray you would help them, you would show them that key and you would make them realize that the spirit you've given them and the calling you've given them and the purpose you've given them, they have an opportunity every single day to open the doors to heaven and be used by you, be the church for the world to see who Jesus is. What he began to do, we're going to continue. What he began to teach, we're going to continue. What he began, we are just getting started with. So Lord, we hope and pray 
that we can measure up. Give us patience and give us faith as we serve you the best we know how. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.